Welcome to Rights Talk, a podcast devoted to engaging contemporary human rights challenges from around the world. I'm Danielle Zak, postdoctoral fellow at the City College of New York downtown. Today we have a special guest, Bon Sing Tan, assistant professor of political science and international relations at Ashoka University. Thanks so much, Bon Sing, for joining us. The pleasure is mine. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about Ban Singh's new book, International Aid and Democracy Promotion, Liberalization at the Margins. Congratulations on your book, Hot Off the Press. We're very excited to have you here on Rights Talk. So I thought mm-hmm. maybe we'd start off, Ban Singh, and talk about, you know, what, what prompted you to write this book? Sure. Um, you may be aware my dissertation research is on the democratic peace. So the democratic peace is this idea that democracies don't fight wars against each other. If that is true, then democratization becomes a way of promoting peace. It becomes a moral imperative. So that led me to start to pay more attention to democratization as a research topic. I also had a visiting stint at the College of William and Mary. Now, back there, there is a think tank called Aid Data. Back then, it was a young and a rising star with regards to foreign aid research. I started to pay more attention to the politics of foreign aid, and I started to apply this to international democracy promotion. So to sum it up for my audience, I started off by considering democratization as a moral imperative, but when I study it, I treat it as a policy imperative. That is to say, if we are going to do this, how can we do this effectively? What is the social science evidence that one method compared to another is more effective? So I approach this empirically. So that is the professional context. I am also reacting to the era we live in. The current international context is one of factless democracies and resurgent authoritarianism. Together, it's a toxic combination for democracy promotion. I wanted to see if it is possible, given the existing political constraints, to still promote democracy. And if we are going to do it, how to do this in an efficient way. At the more personal level, I am aware of the rhetoric coming out from the authoritarian regimes, especially from Asia, right? They are effectively celebrating the end of the liberal world order. Well, not everybody is happy to see the end of the liberal world order. Where possible, I would like to push back in the opposite direction. Yeah, it seems that really democracy is in dire straits these days. I was uh, reading reports from Freedom House and I I think we're over a decade of decline in terms of democracy in the world. And what we're seeing, as you said, is an authoritarian resurgence, partly due to powers such as China and Russia promoting uh, their authoritarian brand. And so, of course, we also, and we'll talk about this a little, little later on in our, in our discussion this, this morning, is to think about, you know, what's happening in Western democracies. And I, and I also appreciate in your book that you take seriously that Western democracies also have 
conflicts in terms of what they're really interested in promoting with their aid and what their priorities are. So I'm going to, I'm going to turn it over, you know, back to you. Can you tell us about the theory that you develop in this book and the data that you've developed to back it up? Sure. So I wanted to understand how the eight donors, the ones with the money, choose among the eight recipients, the ones who need the money, whom to apply diplomatic pressure to. And the reason why I study the dynamics of state-to-state bargaining in foreign aid is because I want to use that information to promote democracy. That is to say, the answer to the first question helps to address the second question. And I'll get right to it, right? I argue that foreign aid can still be used to promote democracy if we are careful on whom we apply the aid to. We should be selective. It should go to that group of recipients that lack the strategic and commercial attributes for reasons that I will go into shortly that render them more susceptible to donor pressure. So this is the group that is more likely to liberalize. Now I'm gonna answer the next question. Why is this important? Why should you care? Why should the audience care? Well, I solve a problem that aid donors have. Since foreign aid can function as a bonus income for the authoritarian regime, some leaders may have an incentive to lie about their intention to democratize. They say they want to liberalize, but what they really mean is that they want the money. So it would be very nice for the donors if a priori before the giving of the money, they separate systematically separate between the recipients who are sincere. They say they want to liberalize. They actually mean it from the recipients who are engaging in cheap talk. That is to say, they say, but they have no intention of liberalizing. This filter that I generate is empirical, is quantitative. This is useful because you can now apply it to other types of state-to-state bargaining, not just in foreign aid. There is also a practical implications for my research. Keep in mind the domestic politics within liberal democracies. Among other things, we are living in an age of austerity. The general public is not tolerant about foreign aid. They don't want to spend that much money on foreign aid. COVID just makes it much worse. So the national aid agencies, such as USA um, Agency for International Development, USAID, are always under constant pressure to justify their budget. By helping the aid agencies identify the cases of policy success, I'm helping them in their domestic political debates. So now I'm going to briefly discuss the theory. I'm going to start with the donors and then we'll consider the recipients. So this is the donors. The general public, those that don't study foreign aid, they usually follow the rhetoric of the donors. They assume that foreign aid is motivated by humanitarian concern. We know from the empirical literature on foreign aid, especially the quantitative parts, right? They argue that this is just not true. 
donors have a variety of objectives they pursue with foreign aid. Let me give you examples. Donors could seek geostrategic concessions. Think of USAID to Egypt for over 30 years under the Egyptian president Hussein Mubarak. He was basically buying Egypt's compliance with the Camp David peace deal. That is to say, the foreign aid is buying peace with Israel. Donors can also seek economic concessions. Think of Chinese aid to selected African countries that happen to be rich in the mineral and oil resources that the Chinese economy desperately need. In fact, this is so prominent. Um, when you do a Google search, you can search for the Angolan model. It actually has a name for this pattern of aid giving. Donors can seek democratization. My assumption is that democratization, and this is an assumption supported by the empirical literature, the claim is that democratization, if it is a goal, is a lesser goal. It is ranked behind economic and security interests as far as the donors are concerned. Now, I make one more point. In the book, I make a distinction between liberalization and democratization. I'll be happy to go into it um, later during the talk, but at least right now, for the purpose of illustration, I'm going to use them interchangeably. Yeah, I think that's important to make that distinction. Uh, and I'm glad that you've, you've mentioned that you're going to do that. Yes, I will. Um, let me give you a visual aid. So this is an illustration of the US aid to Pakistan over time. Uh, uh, this is a visual aid, and I'm aware that my audience are listening in the podcast. So I will, vis uh, I will um, describe the aid. There are three periods where the United States give aid to Pakistan. The period during the Cold War, the period immediately after the Cold War, and the period after 2001. During the Cold War, Pakistan had strategic value to the United States in containing communism. So US give aid to Pakistan. After the Cold War, United States no longer needs Pakistan in order to fight communism because the Cold War is over. Notice that the aid to Pakistan effectively dropped to close to zero, right? Because there's a lack of value. And this was true for around 10 years until 2001. After September 11, United States decided they need Pakistan in the war on terror. And then the aid started resuming. So, so Bansing, before yeah. you, you go further, can we just maybe clarify, is the war on terrorism, has it kind of had the similar effect on aid in terms of prioritization of goals as the Cold War did? Yes, yes. Unfortunately, yes. That means United States still ranks democracy promotion as a lower priority behind all the other geostrategic concerns that the United States happened to have. The Cold War, um, during the Cold War, this was anti-communism. Now, it seems to be anti-terrorism, right? So whoever is a good ally in the fight or, uh, uh, in counter-terrorism. This is tragic and it has implications and we can discuss this um, as I go along. So, even if we should be so lucky as to get a donor that is interested in democratization, 
we still need to consider the recipient point of view. Why? Because the recipients are strategic actors. They have agencies. So now I consider the dictator, the autocrat. How would he react when he comes under pressure to liberalize? The first implication is that democratization is politically painful for the dictator, which self-respecting dictator would voluntarily give up power if they could help it. So the question becomes, what can they do about it? Now, there are several possible responses. The one that I focus in the book is the response by the authoritarian leader to make a counter-offer, a grand bargain with the donors to give some other concessions in exchange for the money, but without democratization. So, uh, this is a bargaining scenario. The recipients with the strategic and commercial attributes that the donor wants should have a much easier time getting the deal, the aid deal, compared to the recipients who lack the same attributes. Now I know this is abstract for my audience. I'm going to give you two examples, two motivating examples, and these are actually case studies in the book itself. Back in 2013, there was a coup in Egypt. General al-Sisi overthrew the elected government of President Morsi. This is under the Muslim Brotherhood. Almost immediately after the coup, the US government, and keep in mind this was the Obama administration, they came under pressure to cut off aid to Egypt. To give my audience a context, there is a law passed by Congress that requires the automatic suspension of U.S. foreign aid to any recipients that suffer from, the, um, from a military coup. What was striking was that the United States government, uh, the White House under Obama, refused to cut off aid to Egypt. In fact, they actually refused to call what happened in Egypt a military coup. Because the moment you call it a coup, there's a legal ramification. You have to cut off it and so on. Now, compare the reaction to the reaction to what happened when there was a military coup in Fiji. This was in 2006. Now, for my audience, Fiji is an obscure Pacific island, right? So it's closer to Australia and New Zealand. So there, the reaction of the United States was decisive. They cut off all eight. They insisted on democratization, citing the same law by Congress, which they noticeably refused to apply to Egypt. So the question I'm asking, why is there such a disparity in the response by the donors? So this will be the research puzzle. In simple language, it's because Egypt is an important ally of the United States in the Middle East. Egypt is too important for the U.S. to risk democratization on. Now, the U.S. have no particular need for Fiji. So there, Fiji, United States can now afford, is, uh, is willing to, is uh, capable of indulging, is indulging in a call for democracy because it has no particular need for Fiji. Singh, can you say a little bit more about why Egypt is so geostrategically important to the United States and the Middle East? Sure. So the alliance between Egypt 
and United States is a very long-standing one. It lasted throughout the entire reign of uh, Hussein Mubarak, and notably, even after uh, there was a short interlude between um, um, the the government of uh, Muhammad, um, the government of Morsi, and after that, when Al Sisi came into power, what you want to notice is that the Egyptian authorities took care to maintain their um, effectively uh, alliance with the United States. So this is a long-standing alliance, right? And that the Egypt is probably one of the most significant U.S. ally among the Muslim side of the Arab uh, Arab Israeli debate, uh, um, the conflict, and that this alliance have a long-standing tradition and is something that the U.S. consider a top priority. Uh, a little bit of history. There's a slight irony here. Initially, Egypt wasn't the most important ally of the United States in the Middle East. Initially, the preferred partner of the United States was Iran. And then after the Iranian revolution, the U.S. basically went around shopping for a replacement ally. And Egypt fit the bill, right? Because it was a big power. It was a, a fairly substantial player in Arab politics. And quite crucially, it was willing to listen to the United States and, in a sense, substitute U.S. imperative in exchange for substantial sum of foreign aid coming to Egypt. Yeah. Egypt has received billions and billions of dollars from the United States. Can you say what, what does Egypt particularly do for the United States in the Middle East? Okay. One of the key concessions that Egypt provides for the United States is that Egypt signed the Camp David Peace Accord, which in simple language is a peace deal between Egypt and Israel. United States during the Cold War didn't want a major Middle Eastern war because during the Cold War, the U.S. was worried about two things. Number one, they were worried about the security of the oil supply. They didn't want sanctions or economic pressure coming from OPEC. That's the first concern of the United States. The second one the U.S. was concerned was that any war, any major war in the Middle East could be a pretext for intervention by the Soviet Union. So this is the superpower politics, trying to keep out one patron from entering into one of the domains of the other superpower. So this was the Cold War politics. Mm -hmm. now, so just to say you've now uncovered this disparity in, you know, this observable, very observable disparity in terms of the U.S.'s reaction to the military coup, the overturning of a democratically elected government in Egypt following the Arab Spring and its position in Fiji, which mm -hmm. does not have the geostrategic or economic value that Egypt does. And so here's a puzzle, right? Why do we see these two uh, countries being treated so differently? And you've uncovered that there's an underlying uh, value difference between those two, two countries to the United States. Mm -hmm. um, if I may elaborate slightly further. So the book actually engaged also in statistical analysis. My theory, as Danelle has just pointed out, 
talks about the systematic differences in the way Western donors react to some recipients. So one group, you want to think of them as the Egypts of the eight recipient world. They have bargaining power, right? They, they can resist. So for statistical analysis, I'm going to call them the primary recipient. The other group, think of them as the Fijis of the eight recipient world. They don't have much bargaining power. They are going to find it harder to resist donor pressure. So I hope to have persuaded my audience that not all eight recipients are equally important. This is the insight, right? We can use this for democracy promotion. We should filter the recipients according to their leverage. The autocrats of a primary recipients, they know they are valuable. They are in a position to push back. So when we try to force them or try to pressure them to liberalize, it's more likely to fail. But that doesn't mean the same pressure cannot work on the secondary recipients. Why? Because the secondary recipients do not have that much to offer in the first place. So this should be the correct group for the application of democracy aid. The take-home lesson for the audience is that we should calibrate the aid allocation strategy to emphasize the secondary recipients if we want to be effective at democracy promotion. That's why the subtitle of the book is called Liberalization at the Margins. I, I wanted this to be the original title in the first place. Um, it encapsulates the gist of my argument. The rest of the book, chapter 2 to chapter 7, the, the, book, the rest of the books are just presenting the evidence using a mixture of quantitative and qualitative methods. Yeah, you have a pretty robust data set to test yeah. your theory against. And you yes. also supplement that with the, the case studies. But you yes. also have a, a regional level of analysis that I find interesting. And perhaps we can, we can discuss your comparative regional analysis of Asia and sub-Saharan African countries. One of the chapters in my book conducts regional analysis. The regions I focus on are in Africa and in Asia. They were chosen because together they account for effectively two-thirds of most of the official development assistance. Now let's talk a little bit about Africa. Historically, it accounts for the majority of official development assistance. The results have been disappointing. I cited in the book Dambisa Mayo, who wrote a book called Date 8, criticizing the aid inflows to Africa. If I were to paraphrase one of her more striking arguments, United States, um, the Western donors, gave in effect $1 trillion of aid to Africa for over 60 years. Yet it's one of the few regions that is regressing in the major developmental indicators. The context of economic weaknesses in Africa translate into political vulnerability. The recipients are more, vulnerable, uh, more dependent on aid and the donors know this. So this creates a situation where the donors are able to apply political conditionality to the aid. Now, in the 1990s, many African countries experienced a wave of democratic transition. 
So one of the reasons why I focus on Africa is because there is high aid inflow, a context of economic weaknesses, and the variation in the dependent variable. Now, the next region I focus on is Asia. Asia is very different. Francis Fukuyama once observed that Asia is one of the few regions where there are modern cases of successful development. And what is even more problematic, the successful models are usually based on authoritarian governance. Asia is also the home region of China. The Chinese model, precisely because it's seen to be economically vibrant, is extremely appealing to many authoritarian regimes worldwide. China also provides foreign aid, which in a sense can neutralize or push back against some of the Western aid. So as a result of this, the Western um, Asian recipients are on average 45% richer than your typical aid recipient. In this context, the theory suggests Asia is a weaker or a more difficult region to apply the theory to. And when I did my statistical analysis, that's exactly what I found, right? That, that is the model is the theory of trying to focus on secondary recipients is more successful, more capable of identifying the types of recipient in the African context and less capable of applying it to the Asian context. This is theoretically anticipated. Now, um, in the chapter, I also did a little bit of um, further statistical research where I test for not just the first order effect, I test for second order effects. These are secondary derived implications. So Ban Singh, your research uncovers this disparity between sub-Saharan African countries and Asian countries, just to sum up what you had just said. Um, Sub-Saharan African countries are more amenable to pressure uh, to liberalize as a result of democracy promotion aid owing to their economic fragility and political fragility as opposed to Asian countries, which you note are more economically robust, um, but also importantly is the role of China in this equation that you bring out so nicely in your work. So perhaps you can say more about China on the world stage at this point and its, its role in this reverse wave, so to speak, of, of democracy in the world today. I will be glad to. In my book, I discuss the work of Andrew Nathan. So he's a Columbia professor who did some work on the impact of China on the rest of the world. He pointed out that the Chinese model, precisely because it is successful and is seen as successful, it appeals to a lot of authoritarian leaders because they want to modernize, they want to have economic success, but they don't want the democracy that comes along with it. So the fact that China is seen as economically successful itself asserts a pressure on the West 
Because when the Western donors say, hey, you need to democratize because with democratization, you will have economic success. Then the autocrats will say, look at China. China has a, China managed to do it without democracy. So why should we democratize? That's one of the ways China assert pressure on the imperative to promote democracy. There is another way which is quite direct. Over time, Western scholars have noticed that Chinese foreign aid, which used to be a small, insignificant sum, over time, it seemed to have been a much larger sum. The problem with Chinese aid, it seems to be that they give the aid out without imposing the conditionality of political liberalization. So you have a situation where Western donors give aid requiring political reforms, but the Chinese donors can give aid without any conditionality. So that, in a sense, threatens or seems to undermine the Western ability to put pressure because now the recipients have an exit option. They can turn to another party. Now, I say the word, I use several terms in quotation, in quotation marks, or I use words that suggest, imply, without confirmation. The reason why I'm very cautious about this is because the data on Chinese foreign aid is highly contested. I'm sure the Chinese government published some data on their foreign aid. A lot of the Western donors, I'm sorry, the Western scholars, they are a bit skeptical on the veracity and the accuracy of the data. That is to say, there's a lot of misinformation about Chinese aid. I just want to take this moment to also point out that aid data, which is the think tank based in College of William and Mary, they have very innovative and interesting research where they do web trawling. That means they go and look at the websites to see reports from third parties about Chinese aid. Because um, a lot of the Western donors, um, I'm sorry, a lot of the Western scholars are skeptical about the quality of the data coming out from China itself. So can you, you mentioned that China offers an alternative source of aid without the conditionalities that the West attaches to countries who have nothing to bargain with, so to speak, uh, geostrategically or economically. Can you say more about what you talk about in your work donor switching and the implications for democracy in the world today? Sure. The standard explanation of the Chinese influence assumed that China simply serve as an exit option. Let me give a practical example. If United States put pressure on Myanmar, the fact that China is willing to give aid implies that the Burmese authority can just turn to China as an alternative patron. And therefore, that will give Myanmar leverage against the United States. That's the standard model, right? So the existence of China 
implies that the leverage lies with the recipient. In my case study, in the book, I, I elaborate on the concept of donor switching. Here, I focus on what China wants. That is to say, if China is a sec alternative patron, what is the strategic interest of China? I show that once China realized that Myanmar doesn't have the ability to get aid from the United States, it logically is in its own self-interest increase the demand on Myanmar over time because they realize that the recipient doesn't have that much bargaining power and that translates into an increased demand upon Myanmar. At some point, the increase in the demands from China can be so exorbitant, so painful, that it may be in the interest of the Burmese authorities to consider switching back to the United States. Not because they like the United States, but because up at some point, it might be in the uh, it might be in the rational utility is in the um, is in the interest of the leadership to seek U.S. influence, U.S. aid, if only as a bargaining chip back against the Chinese. So Can it's this idea of sure. About, so in, Can um, you say more about what China? had tried to exact from Myanmar that led it to switch back to the United States? Sure. Initially, when um, Burma underwent, uh, Burma, as you know, right, has a long history of military rule and it engaged in brutal suppressions of the democratic movements. So after the initial wave of the um, democratic suppression, um, democratic um, suppression of the democratic movements, especially after the 888 incident, the United States and the Western donors put sanctions on Myanmar. So cut off from aid, cut off from Western investment, they turned to China. One side result of it is that over time, the Chinese goods, Chinese businesses started to dominate the Burmese economy. So much so that Burma, the entire country, is sometimes described somewhat dismissively as an adjunct to one of the Chinese provinces, the Yunnan provinces, right? That means China, Burma is now tightly integrated into the Chinese economic system. To the military leadership, the junta, right? This is a very xenophobic, very suspicious junta. They are deeply uncomfortable about their economic dependence on China. The Burmese people also periodically experience wave of xenophobia. That means they are afraid of the Chinese and there are outbreaks of violence against the Chinese and that they, the locals actually are resentful of Chinese influence, Chinese dominance. There is a particular incident that was quite prominent. There was a dam a major dam that was constructed in Burma and that dam was trying to capture hydropower and it was meant to be sold to China under terms that are in favor to the Chinese. 
that dam was extremely unpopular with the Burmese population. In a very remarkable move, the Burmese leadership asked China to roll back or um, ease up on the pressure on the construction of the dam. The Chinese leadership assumed that Burma has no choice but to listen to the Chinese. So they, re uh, they refused to ease up on their pressure. Tian Xian Xuan, uh, one of the leaders, uh, the military leader at that time, basically decided that Burma is going to cut off or stop or halt the construction of the dam. S such is the political fallout that the Burmese leadership basically decided the dam was too politically toxic, that they should cut it or uh, suspend the construction. And that was a significant event because it's one of the few times when the Burmese authorities actually seem to deviate from the Chinese imperative. And shortly after that, what is also important was that Burma started its own program of political liberalization. Ties between the United States and Burma became much warmer. This culminated in an actual presidential uh, visit from President Obama to Burma, right? And, it, and during the visit, among the things that he announced, he announced of the lifting of sanctions on Burma and the resumption of foreign aid, conditional, of course, on further liberalization and a commitment to democratic reforms by the Burmese authority. So my point is that even though China as an exit option does give leverage to eight recipients to stay authoritarian. This is not a universal good thing for eight recipients. Over-dependence on one patron can generate weaknesses or inter um, vulnerability for the patron. And that may not always work to the recipient's advantage. It also means that for people invested in democracy promotion, donor switching may sometimes work in favor of democracy. Not always, but it's possible. In theory, it's possible. Mm -hmm. Can you say more about the liberalization in Myanmar? I mean, at the same time, we see you know, the switching, we see the pivot toward the United States, which does lead to liberalizing processes at the same mm -hmm. time as we see a genocide emerging in 2016 and 2017, where we have, you know, the ethnic cleansing of 700,000 Rohingya to mm -hmm. Bangladesh. And so how meaningful is that political liberalization in a context of what then happens is a mass genocide? Mm -hmm. In addition sure. to that, um, we also know that China has essentially paralyzed any kind of multilateral response to the ethnic cleansing, crimes against humanity and genocide that have happened in that territory. And so it seems that it has the best of both worlds in terms of now having the cover of China in the United Nations and particularly the Security Council. I will try to. Um, even though the question does encompass two very distinct issues. I'm going to address the first issue, which is the distinction between liberalization 
and democratization. In comparative politics, my audience will know, um, liberalization deals with the political reforms that are more of a superficial nature. Democratization is more that deals with reforms that are associated with democratic consolidation. That means the process that ends when the leadership are completely accountable to the people of the country. Many of the reforms we see here, and this is what we see in Myanmar, is actually political liberalization, not necessarily democratization. My audience will be aware that the holding of elections, multi-party elections, is typically considered reform, is considered in the direction of democracy, is usually liberalization without necessarily democratization. Because A, um, authoritarian regimes can cheat or, or rig the election to ensure that the same party still runs in power. I'm not saying that happened in Myanmar because in Myanmar, the National League for Democracy, which is a civilian organization, did come into power. But I'm saying that in some autocracies, um, you can have an election. The new party that come into power are actually the elites from the old regime. They just repurpose themselves. They put on civilian clothes and they, they are still effectively in power. Now, Myanmar is slightly different, right? Or, or more complicated case. The 2008 constitution, which is the current constitution of Myanmar, that constitution was written by the military authorities. Among other things, the constitution guarantees the autonomy of the Burmese military, known locally as the Tatmandaw. Let me point out two things that are quite remarkable. Number one, the leadership, for example, the head of army, the defense minister, or your top military leadership, they are not selected by the NLD government. That means Aung San Suu Kyi cannot choose the military leadership. Who choose the military leaders? The army themselves. That means the army as an institution is autonomous. It doesn't need to listen to the civilian. The other thing that's remarkable is that the budget of the army is also autonomous. The NLD cannot cut the budget of the army. And the Burmese military, the top leaders, um, they are involved in many spheres in the Burmese economy. Um, this is the standard model of corruption and all the sidekicks and so on, which also means that the civilian leaders have no way to control the behavior of the military. They can't even hurt the personnel. They cannot remove the budget. So that means the army in Myanmar basically does whatever it wants. So now I'm going to link this back to the Rohingya issue that many people care about. Look at it from Aung San Suu Kyi's point of view. If she declares there is a problem and she orders the military, for example, to stop persecuting the Rohingya, how is the military likely to react? Most likely, the military is just going to ignore her and do whatever she wants, uh, whatever the army wants in the first place. So as a strategic actor, as a politician, you do not want yourself to be put in a position when you give an order and the army in, 
ignores your order. It weakens you. If you know they are not going to listen to you, the smarter thing to do, the, the, rational, choice to, uh, the rational choice reaction is to uh, ignore, bypass, or try not to highlight the situation because it will make you look weak. So because of this, it is not in the interest of Aung San Suu Kyi to highlight the Rohingya issue in terms of the power dynamics, right? Because the army is a far stronger actor relative to Aung San Suu Kyi. I'm, in terms I need of to domestically, make... right? In terms yes. of not wanting to look weak, but I mean, it's yes. obvious here that the military is, is calling the shots. And so that yes. from an ethical and a moral perspective, not speaking out is deeply problematic for somebody who has won the Nobel Peace Prize. Yes, from the perspective of those who are committed to human rights, which I understand is the majority of my audience of this podcast. Aung San Suu Kyi, and I'm not the only person to point this out, she is functioning as a politician. And that within Myanmar, the persecution of the Rohingyas, unfortunate as it is, is actually popular. That is to say, the majority of the population don't really care that the Rohingyas are being persecuted. This is not unique to Myanmar. In, in India, right? So there's a persecution of the Muslims. So if I am a politician and I'm trying to win the majority vote, the median voter, I will be inclined to go where the population go. So this is a political calculation, right? She's functioning as a politician. Does this mean that she no longer cares about human rights? Well, I can only go by her behavior. Her behavior suggests that human rights is not a primary concern of her right now. And I think there's a parallel here to say that, you know, Western donors don't prioritize democracy as their number one concern. Right? Those are subordinate to geostrategic and economic interests. Yes. In the last chapter of the book, I talk about the limitations of my um, aid allocation strategy. I pointed out, we focus on the secondary recipients precisely because they have nothing else to offer, which means that if you want to promote democracy, you cannot go after the important recipients with a lot of strategic value, right? It's, it's a recognition of the fact that Western donors do not prioritize democracy promotion. So it's a very sensitive, it's a work that is very sensitive to the political constraint we are working under. Namely, the elites, the leadership of the West are responding to the electorates. The people, to use the American expression, we the people, we the people do not value the liberties of others. It's just not that important compared to what else we can get from the rest of the world. So it's sad, but it's the world we live in. And I start from the world as it is, not, not the world as I would like it to be. So the, in a sense, this work is very realistic. It's anchored in the political realities taking them as they are, not as I would like them to be. Even so, I think 
I think it's fantastic that you actually come up with a very detailed list of countries that would seem to be more amenable, right, to mm-hmm. pressure to liberalize. I, I don't think autocrats are happy to hear this list, right? So, but, but it's a tentative list, right? So that means it's suggestive, it's backwards in the sense that it's based on prior data. My point is that the framework, the theory, the mindset is the one that is useful for policymakers because the top level policymakers have access to um, idiosyncratic and specific data. Only their top governments will have, right? So they can use it to build their own list of primary recipients and more importantly, secondary recipients. That means one should think of my empirical research not as the comprehensive list, but as a starting point. Use it to build your own specific list using data that are private. That means privy only to the top leadership. Keep in mind, of course, as a scholar, I can only work with publicly available data, which is usually not very granular. It's quite coarse, right? It's generic. The leaders of Western democracies, they should have access to a lot more sensitive data and they can build a more accurate list. So that is the one of the contribution of this work. Yeah, it has a very significant policy suggestions based on based on your in-depth statistical and qualitative analysis um, that you undertake in this work. I want to maybe close out on a final point. We've seen certainly democracy declining, as we said at the outset, worldwide yes. for more than a decade. I think Freedom House has it at 13 years at this point. Mm-hmm. We see authoritarian regimes learning from each other, as you discuss in the book. Mm-hmm. So perhaps you can pick up on this learning dynamic. And mm-hmm. second, also not just this, this idea of learning from each other, but also thinking about how the domestic politics in recent years in Western democracies also gives a signal that straying from the democratic path uh, is, is acceptable mm. to Western countries, given their own rise of nationalism, xenophobia, far-right parties. What is this? How does the big picture look to you? Okay. So let's talk about the first issue, and then uh, the, which is the one on authoritarian learning. And then later I will talk about the current era, that means the, the populist rise. So let's talk about learning, right? The authoritarian regimes nowadays are a different breed from what they had, uh, what we had, say, 20 years ago. Among other things, they are more innovative, more capable of interrupting the standard modalities of democracy promotion. Let me give an example, right? Um, The traditional modality of democracy promotion is for a Western donor to give aid to a human rights or a civil society organization in an authoritarian regime. What is the problem with that? 
the the civil society organizations are located inside the authoritarian regime. Any smart dictator can put pressure on the civil society actors by doing several things. They could pass a law to require the civil society groups to announce if they are receiving money from foreign donors. They could pass a law to outright ban foreign donors. They can do things like put their police to systematically harass the civil rights actors and so on. And the learning part comes here. When one authoritarian regime successfully repressed civil society, the other authoritarian regimes observe this and they learn from each other. There is a, there's a certain amount of best practices in repression of civil society. And autocrats are aware, they pay attention. In other words, when China comes out with a successful model of repression, it spreads to other regimes. People concerned about democracy have pointed out that law can be easily used for the suppression of civil society. The main point is that other authoritarian regime will recognize the potential of such a law and innovate and implement their own version. So they are using each other as the precedence to push the boundaries of what is acceptable. Here's a second example. China is uh, coming up with facial recognition technology. This is linked to the campaign or related to the public health issue of trying to do contact tracing to try to uh, reduce the pandemic influence. The problem is that facial recognition technology in the authoritarian hands can easily be used to enhance state control upon society. In the book, in the initial chapters, I talk about how authoritarian regimes are learning from each other with regards to the suppression or the interference in Western efforts to promote democracy. Let me give some of the academic literature about this. Tom Ginsberg, a professor at University of Chicago, he visited Ashoka last year. This was before the pandemic. He presented a paper on authoritarian international law. So he talks about this idea of an authoritarian version of international law that emphasized the protection and the entrenchment of the political survival of authoritarian regime. And then he compares this between authoritarian international law and democratic international law. So here are some of the interesting contrasts. Authoritarian, um, in democratic international law emphasize judicial independence. So you want a third party that is independent of both of them and the judiciary is supposed to be independent of the current government of the day. Authoritarian international law emphasize legality. They don't have a notion, a comparable notion of a judicial independence. Whatever the law says, that's what the citizens are supposed to follow. So one of the key things that he noticed was that authoritarian regimes are now better at subverting international organizations. Initially, they were imitating the Western organizations. So for example, when the West come out with 
NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the authoritarian regimes come out with the Warsaw Pact. When the West comes up with the European Union, ASEAN countries will come, um, sorry, Southeast Asian countries will come up with ASEAN, Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Ginsburg is trying to say that that period of imitation is over. What authoritarian regimes are doing now is that they are innovative. They are coming up with their own international counterparts. So he has examples such as the Shanghai Cooperation Council, where basically six authoritarian regimes share the best practices in internal repression. So for example, they will have lists of candidates, um, not candidates, lists of people that they consider dissidents and they will agree to arrest dissidents even if the dissidents manage to flee the country, right? So it's a kind of a cooperative and it's innovative, right? So that means this is something that the West, Western donors, if they are interested in democracy promotion, should be really sensitive about. Something else is happening in international governments. So we've seen the more effective repressive strategies through the use of, of law and outright repression in many of these countries, which makes civil society less a feasible avenue for channeling aid for change. Let's turn to Western democracies, right? What we've seen happening over the past few years is actually quite alarming. Even in the United States, we've seen quite a decline in terms of the, the robustness of democracy. And so what does that mean for a country that is a donor in terms of their own credibility when we see these trends happening, again, not just in the United States, but certainly um, many other democratic countries turning toward populist authoritarian type strategies to mobilize mass populations in a nationalist fervor? Yes. In the last chapter of the book, I talk about the current international context. I pay attention to some of the populist government and I devoted a slight section where I talk about Donald Trump's foreign policy. I took care to point out Donald Trump is not a unique feature. That means it's a symptomatic of a larger wave uh, amongst many, multi, uh, many populist movements in many Western liberal democracy. The key point here is that the Trump's foreign policy is transactional. Regardless of whether you are a long-term ally of the United States or you are a strategic rival, Trump is looking for gaining in each and every transaction the result of that, for my theory of democracy promotion, is actually quite minor. Think of it this way. The primary recipients have a lot to offer. If they have a lot to offer, Trump and populist leaders like Trump will be willing to ignore backsliding in democracy promotion because they value the concessions which also means that the secondary recipients, the countries that don't have that much to offer, 
will also not be as strategically useful, not as commercially valuable. They are still in a weak bargaining position vis-a-vis -vis the populist leader. So that's the good news, right? Even under a populist leader like Trump or Trump-like leaders, democracy promotion is not as strongly impacted. Of course, the foreign aid budget will be slashed. This is unavoidable. The bad news is this. Even if we remove the populist leader, so you have a Biden in charge, the United States doesn't actually value democracy that much. That means even in a non-populist government, democracy promotion, unfortunately, will still be a lower priority. That's why in the book, the last chapter, I call it, uh, I use the phrase, no golden age. It's not helpful for democracy promoters, people interested in democracy promotion, to talk about a golden age of democracy promotion, right? That Western liberal democracies typically do not emphasize democracy promotion. It's far more useful to start from the assumption that democracy promotion is at best a tertiary concern. Given my audience, I should point out that maybe that is also a useful way to think about human rights. That is not about promoting human rights at the expense of promoting a strategic allies. The strategic allies is always more important. So given this constraint, how can you still promote human rights? So that, that would be something that is useful to think about. Thank you so much for joining us, Ban Singh. That's just a, a terrific way to end our, our very rich, in-depth conversation. You give us a very realist, pragmatic perspective on democracy promotion uh, historically and, and into the present. And so thank you so much for joining us all the way from India. I appreciate that it's late uh, at where you are in the world today and just so happy that you were able to be with us. Thank you very much. The pleasure is mine and stay safe. And thanking all of our listeners, wishing everybody safety and good health.